Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history behind it. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, come on England, uh, let's go football mad. We'll go on getting back, on getting back, on getting back. Snooker loopy nuts are we, we are snooker loopy. Uh, cricket, what? No, no, sorry, I'm, I'm, I got off already on a tangent. This time round, it's the World Cup. Okay, the World Cup. Why am I doing it now? Because unless you're under a rock or American, it's the World Cup. Every football team will be playing football several times and in various combinations. If you can catch all of that football here, where we'll be showing all the football all the time. So it's a really interesting chance to talk about its history because. Believe it or not, the history of the World Cup is almost a hundred years old, even though technically the first World Cup sort of happened in 1930. More on that in a moment. But where I want to start off with is my slightly glib comment about America. And I can prove to you that the Americans aren't really interested in the World Cup because at the time of recording, it's not finished yet. I can't tell you who's going to win the World Cup. But on Monday, November the 21st, that was the day that England had their opening match and they won it 6-2 against Iran. And also America played Wales, ended up being a draw one all. But... I was doing online work with a company that has multiple offices around the world, three of which are in America. And because of the time differences, I was actually working with that group, the three offices in America, that's New York, Chicago, and LA. These are educated people who are deal with the whole world, but they are also proud Americans, and they had no idea that A, America was playing in the World Cup, B, that the World Cup was on, or C, they might want to switch on their TVs in an hour or so from the time that I was talking to them for them to see if their team was going to do well or not. And I just want to start off with one of the strangest things about 20th and 21st century culture, pop culture, if you will. Because if we're going to talk about 
the greatest influence on the world stage in terms of pop culture if you go back to loads and loads of the episodes that I've already done on this podcast, you'll notice a lot of them are American. Why? Well, when it comes to world music, it's the US. The, the whole world looks to the US. At number two is Britain, punching above its weight, quite frankly. But, you know, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, your Duran Durans, your Ed Sheerans, your Adele's, you know, we keep pumping out groups and artists that can fill stadia, whether we're talking about London or New York or Rio. Anywhere in the world, people like British music, but there can be no doubt that you've got your Elvises and Taylor Swifts and all the different rap artists, etc., your Beyonces, etc. Britain's big, America's bigger. So in terms of the world of music, America is number one on planet Earth. Well, I love America. Then let's look at things like movies. I've certainly done plenty of stuff about TV and movies, and almost all of them are American, or at least American money making them. They may not always star Americans, but basically they're coming through the major studios in America. Your Sony's, well, I know they're Japanese, but they have a whole American division. It's not all in Japanese, okay? And Warner Brothers and MGM, and, and more recently the likes of Netflix and Amazon Studios, etc. So yeah, all of this is American, and when we look at the world's biggest grossing movie of all time, it's Avatar. American. Although the director is actually Canadian, and the main star, the man who plays Jake Sully, he's Australian. But you get the idea. Probably just talking to a tree right now. Hollywood is American. We can all agree on that. So, yeah, when it comes to movies, actually the country that produces the most movies is India, but the Indian movies don't travel around the world quite as well as the stuff from America. Then if we look at the world-famous brands just out there in terms of things like fashion and food, we don't think they're necessarily the best at these things, but there's no doubt that McDonald's. Coca-Cola, Levi's. These are world-dominating brands. We want to go into technology, it could be Microsoft, it could be Apple, etc. So, yeah, America is everywhere around the world. You have people who hate America, yet they might be wearing an Apple Watch or something like that. It's fascinating to me how people don't even necessarily think of McDonald's as being particularly American. Mackey D's, as it's referred to in England, it's where kids go to after school to grab some food. They're not praying to the altar of Americana. They're just hungry, and it's relatively low cost, and it's really easy, and it's very child-friendly. So that's why they do good business. So with all that to, to one side, of course, you might see where this is going. Where's the sport? If America is so dominant in all these other things, why isn't the whole world wrapped up with the Pittsburgh Steelers or the Pittsburgh Penguins, says Jen, suddenly I'm clearly obsessed with Pittsburgh, or the New York Giants, or the Chicago Bulls, etc. You know, the big sports in America is what they call football, what the rest of the world calls American football, and baseball, and basketball. And look, there are a lot of fans of, of these things around the world, particularly basketball, because it's quite fast-paced. What's going on here? Why, Michael? I thought you'd never ask. 
You see, these aliens come from outer space and they want to make us slaves in their theme park. Eh, what do we care? They're little, so we challenge them to a basketball game. But then they show up and they ain't so little. But there aren't as many fans of basketball around the world as football, soccer if you're American, by comparison, globally. Why? And I was talking to a very smart friend of mine and he has a hypothesis that I don't think he created, but he was reading about it and I really like it. And the reality is this, when it comes to sport, it's all about the moments. And because of the time differences, I am not going to get up at two o'clock in the morning to watch the Dallas Cowboys play the LA Raiders. I, it's just not worth getting up at 2 a.m. for. And also, American football matches go on for so long. I wouldn't mind if you wanted to go fly kites with Shelton. No, I'll watch the end of the game. Besides, there's only three minutes left. Until halftime. This is just half? So the argument is, if it's not live, people don't care. So from the point of view of the rest of the world, particularly Europe, where traditionally a lot of money's been sitting, or indeed if we go into Asia, places like Japan, it's so far away from America, it's like, well, I, I'm not going to get up super early to watch a sport I don't know anything about. So it never kind of catches fire. And flip side to America, you have to be getting up very early or staying up very late to watch football. Admittedly, if we're talking about somewhere like Brazil versus Argentina, they're basically in the same time zones as America. But again, it hasn't really caught fire. And what I find interesting is if you go around the world, there are far more fans of Barcelona football team or Manchester United football team than there are, again, the Green Bay Packers, the Chicago Cubs, etc. So yeah, America, because of its time zones, means that you're going to have to pre-record this stuff. And for starters, for most of the 20th century, it was basically impossible to pre-record this stuff. And that's even if it was on TV. And then once we're into the digital age, well, it's very hard to avoid scores before I sit down and start watching things. People are already sort of like putting out reviews and highlights and things like that. And if I'm really into a certain sport, it's already ruined before I sit down and start watching it. That's why America doesn't care about the World Cup, but the rest of the world absolutely does. Second only to the Olympics, the single biggest viewing event on planet Earth is the once every four years kind of event of the World Cup. And so let's go through the history because, again, I've read these rather interesting articles as we go into the Qatari World Cup of 22 about how football is such a huge stage that it's actually been involved in terms of nation building and indeed brand recognition of certain countries around the world. And I don't disagree with that. I think that's really quite powerful and logical. And I'll come to the biggest name. And as I'm saying that, you know, what is, I'll just put this out, see, see what's in your head. When I say, what is the biggest international brand, nation country? So again, I'm not talking about your Liverpools or Bayern Munichs or anything like that. I'm talking about countries. You know, when I say sort of World Cup winners, you know, sort of incredibly impressive teams, what country, what number one country springs to mind? Because I'm guessing you're going to agree with me, but we shall see. Let's get into the, the meat of all of this. So during the 2008 Olympics, there was this stuff in China about how China invented football because there was this early medieval manuscript that mentioned kicking a ball. 
And if that keeps China happy, that's fine. But nobody seriously thinks that China invented the modern sport of football. The idea of kicking a ball, I'm sure, way predates that scroll, as little kids were kicking, I don't know, toads around in the Stone Age or something like that. Kicking things is, is a very natural human reaction to stuff. Yeah, good for you. But the reason why we all know that China didn't invent the modern game is if you fast forward to, let's say, the year is... 1850, China wasn't covered in football fields and everybody's playing football. Indeed, today, considering it has the world's largest population, China isn't even close to being a global power in the world of football. That's other countries. Clearly, the modern sport of football with the modern rules emanates from England. That's where it is. In the late 19th century, and indeed as the British Empire spread, football fans started going around the world and setting up teams. One of my favourite examples of that is you've got Juventus in Italy, a very famous team there. They've got... Hang on. I might be getting this wrong. I might be shouted at now by fans. Either it's Juventus or it's AC Milan. I cannot remember which. I'm pretty sure, as I'm saying it, I'm pretty sure it's AC Milan. Somebody's going to kill me for this. But anyway, the point is this. Why are they playing in black and white stripes? And the answer is because that's what Newcastle was playing. And the people who introduced the football to the Italians had some new, they were Newcastle fans, they had Newcastle kit. And so that's clearly what you, the kit that you play to play football. So that would be an example. Hello, everyone. This is Greg, who does all the editing on these podcasts. I don't know a lot about football. However, I did spend nearly a decade living in Turin, the home of Juventus. So I can confirm that the black and white kit is worn by Juventus and not Milan. Again, I've kind of undercut myself by going, oh, is it Juventus? Is it AC Milan? The story itself is true, and you'll find multiple examples of this. I happen to know that Argentinian football, Argentina for many years really admired Britain, and so it was picked up. It was seen as a very British thing to do, and British things were de rigueur in the late 19th and into the 20th century, and so that's what, why Argentina started playing football as opposed to baseball or something like that. So, when did it all start? Hmm. Well, the very first international match was between England and Scotland in 1872. Indeed, nowadays, the World Cup is run by this organisation called FIFA. A bit more about them in a moment. But first of all, FIFA is based in, in Geneva. That's nowhere near England. Why is FIFA sort of got all these people like Sepp Blatter in the past running everything, Jules Rimet? These are not English names. And the reason for that, it's been explained by FIFA and other countries as arrogance on England's part. But the reality is that's the classic example of looking at history the wrong way around. If the year is, let's say, 1920, Britain's got a, the world's largest empire. It's just won a world war. And it's football mad. Where are the best football players in the world? In Britain, I'm going to say. And regularly you get Scotland, England, Wales, Ireland playing against each other in international matches. And it's the best in the world. So why do we need to join this other organization on continental Europe? And so it wasn't so much arrogance. It was more a case of irrelevance that was going on. And indeed, it was so, FIFA was so irrelevant 
that while it was founded round about 1920, it actually said, now the very first World Cup on its own, organized by FIFA, was in 1930. But here's the thing, football was being played internationally in the Olympics and had been done pretty much since the invention of the modern Olympics. But what FIFA, which existed at the same time as the early Olympics in the early 20th century, they ended up saying that the football that was played at the Olympics in 1924 basically also counted as a World Cup. Because let's face it, you're talking about the best people in the world representing their nations. What's the difference between that and the World Cup today, or the theory of a World Cup just generally? So 1924 and 1928 are recognized by FIFA as actually technically the first World Cups. And who won in 24 and 28? The answer is Uruguay, or Uruguay, if you're going to be English about it. And then in 1930, it was kind of logical that, well, Uruguay has won these two in a row, so when we're going to do our first ever World Cup, where are we going to do it? Well, let's do it in Uruguay. And guess who won the first World Cup? Uruguay. And so at the very start of the tournament, you actually have a team that's technically already won it twice, even though this is the first one. And that's kind of confusing and weird. Uruguay, why pick them? Because actually, Uruguay, at the beginning of the 20th century, was unlike what you know about South America. It was actually a well-run, prosperous country. And it had already created a fierce rivalry with their neighbor, Argentina. Don't cry for me, Argentina. So you basically got these two countries at each other's throats. And funnily enough, those are the two countries that make it to the final. And Uruguay wins. I've just told you that. But what's interesting is Uruguay, you know, it was so competitive then. And all these players in the 1920s and 30s, they're clearly not paid anything like the mega millions of dollars, pounds, euros, whatever you want to say, of a modern footballer. But what was interesting is the Uruguayan government was so pleased about Uruguay beating Argentina in the first World Cup that every player was given a house. And I don't care where you are in the world. That's pretty amazing. That's, you know, that, that's, that's really, really cool that, you know, they're getting that much money or assets, let's say that. That's how the World Cup kicked off. And that's not the world's worst way to start it. But the thing that FIFA loves to talk about is how they want to keep the politics out of football. They want the football to talk and let's not sort of get muddied with other things, which is causing real problems in 22 in Qatar. More on that in a bit. But it's always been there. As I've said, you know, once you've got nations pushing against each other, then you're starting to apply the kind of like national pride and all this kind of whipping up of frenzy, etc. And yeah, so the politics is, is there from the very beginning. Like I say, the government of Uruguay was so pleased that these men kicked a ball around in a field that they were given actual assets, substantial assets for the time. And indeed, the way the papers wrote about it in Uruguay and Argentina, funnily enough, in England, it was it barely registered. Then it, they were talking about it like it was a conflict or something like that. And indeed, now that I've told you all these things, the one thing that will stick in your mind is Uruguay 
I can't even tell you what the capital city of Uruguay is. I'm guessing it's in South America, but I do know that they won the first World Cup. So this is an example of this kind of nation building without having to fight wars or, you know, sort of reinvent economics or anything else like that. It's just you get a certain reputation. And funnily enough, that was heightened massively in the second World Cup in 1934. So that we are already starting with the four year cycle now. In 1934, the second World Cup is in Italy. And unsurprisingly, Uruguay won it because it was in Uruguay. Second one's in Italy. Guess who wins it then? But the important thing, though, in this particular situation is that we are talking about Mussolini's Italy. And so Mussolini around the World Cup was whipping the country into a frenzy. This is a bit like the sort of like Aryan supremacy of Hitler. Don't forget, Mussolini came on the scene before Hitler, sort of Hitler in a way at the beginning of his career looked up to Mussolini and then surpassed him in every possible negative way afterwards. But anyway, the point is that if you went to the World Cup in 1934, there's no doubt, there's no hiding that this is a fascist regime, that everything is around the sort of like the glory of the organization and the individual is being crushed by the whole, the nation. Not a very pleasant environment, not a very pleasant surrounding, and very much the opposite of what we have been told the World Cup's all about. But from the pretty much the very beginning, it was there. The politics was there on the pitch in 1934. So after the fascist football of 1934, we go to France in 1938, which is the first time the host nation doesn't win the World Cup. But clearly the storm clouds of war are gathering on the horizon and all those those cliches so funnily enough the 42 one doesn't happen nor does the 46 one as everyone's trying to recover obviously the olympics actually happen in 48 so it takes that gives you an idea of how long things have to sort of quickly recover after the world wars but we then go in 1950 to brazil and funnily enough we're back to normal services provided because Brazil wins the World Cup there. It's the first time Brazil does. And when I say Brazil and World Cup, surely that's the, when I said earlier, the country that you think of the most, it's Brazil, isn't it? I mean, if you want to get cute and go, no, I've always loved Senegal or whatever. Okay, fine. Good for you. But hopefully you can understand that if I say, name me famous things from Brazil, the first one you're going to say is football, aren't you? Brazil nuts. What I'm going to do is say that with Brazil, we that's the first one in 1950 to have the Jules Rimet trophy. This is important because the Jules Rimet trophy was actually stolen during the World Cup in 1966. And it's actually been reinvented and redesigned to the more famous thing today, which is sort of like a bunch of cheering crowds with the, the globe looking like a football, that sort of golden trophy. That's not the original one. And indeed, I'm obviously an English person, a proud English person. In 66, we win the World Cup. Yes, they're holding up the Jules Rimet trophy, which just looks small and rubbish compared to the modern one. But anyway. 1950, we've got Brazil there, and Brazil suddenly now on the scene as a big going concern. 54, we go to a rather unusual country. When people start complaining about Qatar being a small population, and it, what, what's it ever done for football? And what have they ever given us in return? I hear you, okay? But Switzerland is neither a titan of football nor does it have a massive population, particularly compared to the likes of Brazil and Italy and so on and so forth. 
so happens in Switzerland. But what's interesting is this is when the countries that have been involved on the losing side of World War II are allowed back in, and West Germany wins it for their first time in. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Their history. And it's controversial. There are a lot of people who think that the Germans act in an arrogant and unsightly manner. But at the same time, hey, they won. But there's, there was some real tension there about what was going on. Indeed, there were some writers saying, you know, this is only nine years after the war, why are we even letting them play? And, you know, why are they sort of like lording it over them? Apparently there were some references to them singing the band version of their national anthem and sort of like various fascist elements to it. In other words, some of the nasty elements of football that are kind of still there. So again, you want to talk about politics on and off the pitch? It's always been there with the World Cup. Don't worry, I'm not going to do an in-depth of every single one. I'm going to jump on to 1962, where it's in Chile. And what's interesting there is it's kind of one of the dirtiest World Cups. Perhaps the most famous game is between Chile and Italy. It becomes known as the Battle of Santiago. 
That's not a good sign when a football match is renamed a battle. The game you're about to see is the most stupid, appalling, disgusting and disgraceful exhibition of football possibly in the history of the game. To give you an idea, by the end of the match, two players have been sent off, there have been physical punches thrown in the match, and the police have had to separate the two teams at times. Absolutely unacceptable. Whatever happens in a modern World Cup, it's very unlikely to get that far or that extreme. That's what happens there, and funnily enough, we're in South America again, and Brazil wins. Then we come to 66 being hosted in England. Interestingly, with the English World Cup in 66, that's the first time a mascot is created for the World Cup. So if you like, we're getting more into the modern world. And if you're English, you know that England wins. And that's the last time we've actually done any winning in the World Cup. Seventy, it's in Mexico, and the critical thing there is it's the first time the World Cup is televised in colour. And so for a lot of the world, you get to see this bright, vivid, sunny Mexico. You get to see the Brazilian team, including Pele, who's already been playing in multiple World Cups. You get to see him with the wearing their bright yellow gold. It's, like, it's not gold. It's just a bright yellow and green or blue. Sorry, I should say shorts. And they just sort of pop out the screen. And for many people, they say that the 70 World Cup is the first modern World Cup. And I don't disagree with that. I'd love that everybody to think that it was 66 with England. Like I say, they invented the mascot side of things. But if it's being filmed around the world in black and white, it's very much of the old ways rather than of the new ways. And so from 1970 onwards, and, and indeed sort of like this is where we get the kind of myth about Brazil, sort of like the Samba Kings and like they, they play the way that Brazilians dance. And, and look, the 70 World Cup team of Brazil is one of the greats, no doubt about that. I'm not in any way denigrating them. But if you like, the modern world has crushed that kind of individuality and unusualness. And, and what's worth remembering is when we're talking about the World Cups until we're into the 1990s is probably the only time you're going to see these star players from South America is in a World Cup. It's really exotic and unusual. Whereas today, most of the Brazilian team is plying their trade in Europe. So you've got someone like Gabriel Jesus. He plays for Arsenal, which I'm in London. Arsenal's a team in London, for example. So if I really wanted to see him pretty much every other weekend, I'd just sort of get on a tube train and I can see him. Suddenly, he's a very good player for the record, but in terms of the luster and unusualness, and of course today, we can just watch video after video of all the times an opposing team is going to play, be it Manchester United or be it Brazil. We can just keep watching the video. So this sort of surprise tactics, people can sit there for hours trying to work out how to neutralize that. A little bit more on that towards the end of this podcast, okay? So, as I've said, we're in Mexico and Brazil wins. Then, again, sort of fast-forwarding a bit, because you probably don't want the sort of thrashing it out on every single occasion, we've got... 82 in Spain, another occasion when absolutely politics is getting seeping into the World Cup. Now in 78, just very briefly, Argentina wins their first World Cup. Well done, Argentina. In 1982, Argentina are the 
people that everybody's expecting to win the World Cup. And they've got this bright young player who looks like they're just taking the mantle of Pele and putting it on his own head, this legend called Maradona. But in 1982, Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands, Las Malvinas as they call them. We are here because for the first time for many years, British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. After several days of rising tension in our relations with Argentina, that country's armed forces attacked the Falkland Islands yesterday and established military control of the islands. And what happened was Argentina at the time, and going back to 78 just very, very briefly, the World Cup, the World Cup was held in 1934 in a fascist dictatorship. Italy, Mussolini. In 1978, it was held in a fascist dictatorship. Well, in Brazil, it was held in a fascist dictatorship. Well, maybe not fascist, but definitely a dictatorship that killed some of its own population. And it's the same thing in 78 in Argentina with the military junta or junta. Can never work. I keep hearing it pronounced two different ways. I'm going to keep saying junta from now on, okay? So anyway, these guys were terrible and awful, and they killed thousands of their own people who were trying to just get some more freedom and liberty in their own countries. Absolutely terrible. Absolutely disgraceful. No excuse for that whatsoever. But by 1982, the veneer was starting to peel off them. They were far less popular. It looked like there might be a popular revolution against them. So what did they do? They decided to do the one thing that everybody in Argentina agrees on, that the Falkland Islands, and that's what I'm going to keep calling them, are definitely Argentinian, and then they invaded the Falkland Islands, which are thousands of miles away from Britain, but are technically a British territory. Well, there's no technically about it. They are. And this surprised Britain, and Britain unbelievably came up with the plan. You've got the first female prime minister. You've got Britain in recession. The islands have already been taken by Argentina. You're going to have to go from the North Atlantic all the way to the South Atlantic. It's also in the Southern Hemisphere. So winter is on its way. In the middle of winter in the Falkland Islands, it's not that far from the Southern Antarctic Circle. Everything says logically well, Argentina's taken it well done. But unbelievably, Margaret Thatcher decided to send an armada, which was so patched together, the main troop ship was just a cruise liner that was renamed and sent south. There were also aircraft carriers, and the SAS were involved, and it was a whole genuine war. The Falklands War lasted for months, not years, and everything I've just said Unbelievably, the British managed to get this convoy, which was under missile attack and, and potentially under other threats as well from the sea. They managed to successfully land on the Falkland Islands and absolutely annihilate the Argentinian armed forces that knew they were coming, waiting for them, had already taken the land and managed to singularly fail to put up a, an effective defense against the British Army and the Air Force and Navy as well. So, yeah, so you've got the Falklands War happening just as the World Cup is starting. Now, funnily enough, the military junta knew that this was not going well, but was suppressing the information in Argentina where they have complete control. But from the perspective of Maradona and the rest of the Argentinian team, they arrive in Spain in 1982 to find out that the war is going really badly. They have been told, it's fine, it's fine, it's going great. And then they arrive in Spain, it's like, you do know it's about to collapse. And literally a couple of days into the World Cup, Argentina surrenders. So while Maradona is absolutely in his prime, the Argentinian team, for all logical reasons, should be the favorites to win, absolutely collapse. 
you know, there are bigger things going on in the world. And so Argentina just don't play very well in that one. And so they ultimately lose in 82. I mean, they don't even make it through the group stages. But good news, the next time we're back to Mexico in 86, and this time round, Argentina does indeed win. And it's actually the match between Argentina and England. And what was interesting is if you listen to the actual people who played in the match, Everybody knew that both their countries would be talking about the war. This is only four years later, after all. And so the pressure was on by everybody else. But in terms of the actual players, they were treating it just like a match. And the England-Argentina match is considered, from 86, is considered one of the most classic games ever in history for two reasons, and they're both to do with Maradona. First of all, Maradona is not a tall man, and he ends up scoring what's pretty obviously a handball. Obviously, if you touch the ha your hand with the ball, it does not count as a goal. And yet, for some reason, even though Maradona's sort of like leaping up against some very large back defenders of, of England who are like six-footers kind of thing, somehow, miraculously, he manages to head, i.e. hand the ball into the goal. The goal is given. So... Basically, to this day, the Argentinians see it as, ah, oh, that's just Maradona being a bit cheeky. Well, I mean, okay, fine. He, he, he cheated, but I get it. I get it from a, from a national point of view. It's sort of like, you consider us pirates for stealing the Falkland Islands, even though we never stole them from you. The reason why Argentina thinks they're theirs is because Argentina used to be part of the Spanish Empire, and the Spanish Empire put claim on the Falklands Islands, and so Argentina has never directly ruled the Falkland Islands. It's, it's a ridiculous echo of the past. You, you know, Argentina absolutely does not want to be part of the Spanish Empire today, and there is no such thing as a Spanish Empire today, but you want to use those rules from 200 years ago to explain why you own those islands, which aren't exactly next door to you either. So the thing is, so number one, there's that cheat goal from Maradona, but it, it stands. You know, that's not Maradona's fault. It's the referee's fault, if you like. And from the point of view of a play, you can do everything to try and get that ball in the back of the net. I get it. But the second reason is the second goal from Maradona, where he dribbles from basically the halfway line and he beats five England players to slot it in. And many people consider it the greatest goal in World Cup history. including England. The last time there was a poll, that came in at number one. So we're happy to admit that that was amazing. And in the words of Gary Lineker, who was the England striker in that match, who did also score, but nobody remembers that, he's even said, he goes, if ever there was a goal that was worth two, it was that goal. And therefore, we can't feel hard done by that, you know, if you lose to Maradona, it's like, fair enough, okay? So, I'm, again, I'm going to sort of like keep fast-forwarding. Don't worry about that. And actually, I'm going to fast-forward quite a lot now to the year 2010, when there was the decision. We're going to make the decision for two different World Cups in a row in 2010. And they went for 2018, it's going to be Russia. And then in 2022, it's going to be Qatar. Now, actually, in 2010, talking about Russia... That's not surprising. They wanted the World Cup to spread into countries that are still developing their football story. That's why there's been a World Cup in America. There's also been one in Japan and South Korea. So, you know, all these things together, it's like, th this makes sense. Russia is a growing sporting empire, if you like, and they're very good in other sports as well. And in 2010, Russia wasn't quite the pariah it was by the time they had the World Cup in 2018. 
in 2014, that's when they sort of sneaked into Ukraine and managed to steal a bit of the East and the Crimean Peninsula. Obviously, the full-on war had yet to happen. But by 2018, it was pretty clear that they were occupying another country. Maybe FIFA should have done something about that, made a stand, but they didn't. And what's interesting is, again, 2010 is when the decision for these two things were happening. But by now, FIFA was almost a laughing stock of how arrogant and corrupt it was. Do you want proof? Okay, well, how about in 2014? Two things happened in 2014 that kind of prove this point. Number one, there was a World Cup in Brazil again. But actually, that had mass protests. I, you know how much Brazil, I've explained to you how much Brazil loves football. So for Brazil to be protesting against the World Cup in Brazil tells you how strongly people felt. But the reality was Brazil in 2014 was an economic mess. And the argument was pretty logically, why are we spending billions on a World Cup, which could be quite easily run in another country? Why can't we spend those billions on improving the favelas or security or healthcare or infrastructure or anything other than more football pitches? Fair point. However, that World Cup went off and it went off well. Also in 2014 is another example of how basically when it came to this decision in 2010 about Russia, Russia, there's a logical sense. You can argue maybe they didn't have to bribe their way to get it. Possibly they did. I, I can't make any specific claims because there's been various comments about this. But for Qatar, Qatar has a population, an actual domestic population of 300,000. Going back to Newcastle, that's Newcastle. Newcastle's never going to win the World Cup, but Qatar did. How? It has no long history of football either. And also it was going to run in the summertime, and apparently they were going to run these massive air conditioning units to allow things to happen in the summer, because all of the World Cups happen in the summer from the Northern Hemisphere's perspective. So I'm talking about July, August, okay? In the end, they had to concede that that was physically impossible because Qatar's basically a peninsula off the Arabian Peninsula, and no, it gets to 50 degrees in the summer, and no amount of air conditioning is going to change that. It therefore became the first one to run in November and December. It just shows you the wild corruption going on. I'll come back to Qatar in a moment. But also in 2014, just to prove how corrupt FIFA was, they had so much money sloshing around that, oh, by the way, for the record, the FBI have also officially said that Qatar bribed FIFA officials to win the World Cup. So that's the FBI. And as again, Americans don't care about the World Cup. So yeah, I will take the, um, the FBI as being almost a neutral party in this situation. But in 2014, there was a movie about FIFA funded by FIFA. Bear with me on this. This is not the story of the great players of the World Cup, your Pelés and your Maradonas. No, this is the story of the creation of FIFA. You know, a governing body, the sort of thing that everybody wants to see a movie about. And money was spent on this. To give you an idea, the top three names in it was Gerard Depardieu playing Jules Rimet. You've got Tim Roth playing Sepp Blatter. Please find a photo of, of Tim Roth in 2014 and then find a photo of Sepp Blatter and you'll realize that is very complimentary to Sepp Blatter. And then Sam Neill playing Jao Havelang. I accept my defeat. I accept this. But it must be some comfort at least to know that you would be honorary president for life. Possibly. Pity it wasn't a fair fight. 
And so, yeah, you see, so Sam Neill, Tim Roth, Gerard Depardieu, if you heard that those three people were in a movie, it's like, yeah, it's going to be a good film. But the topic was basically the administration of a sporting body over the decades. Dull much? Also, I'm going to say you've never even heard of United Passions. It was released in cinemas. It managed to generate a few thousand dollars worth of ticket sales because nobody went to see it. And a meta score. So if you things like Metacritic and things like that is basically an amalgamation of all scores. It's it's weighted. So if you've got a really reputable thing, something like, for example, the Times of London, you know, they've got actual paid editorial staff. If they give something a five star review, that's got more weight than just gem on YouTube giving the same movie a five star review. So there's sort of it there's weighting in terms of importance and also it takes into account the cumulative scores of all these things. So it's obviously out of a hundred. It is the only Metacritic score I can find that's at one. One out of a hundred. It is an unwatchable, complete ego piece paid by the colossal slush funds of FIFA. Don't rent it out, because that means you're giving FIFA more money. Maybe if there's one thing you should ever pirate, maybe United Passions, although do you really want to spend two hours of your time seeing how administration works down the decades? Ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous. So there we go. I've got one last bit to tell you, but just before I do, I'm going to say, as always, please click subscribe. Please give us a review. Please tell somebody about this this podcast or indeed check me out on twitter i'm at gem deduccio i regularly post out you know what's coming out this week and you know please be lovely if you could share thank you very much see how long twitter lasts but anyway but we then come to qatar and actually with qatar you know all the things i've been talking about have bubbled up again and there's look there's no doubt that there has been they got t terrible human rights record and also there's no doubt that people actually died building these stadiums and just generally in the whole of the middle east this kind of like almost indentured servitude by these builders and contractors coming from most notably pakistan and india and sri lanka and, and philippines as well but those seem to be the main places all of this absolutely needs to be addressed but at the same time if fifa's willing to do a deal with mussolini qatar looks pretty good by comparison and let's be honest about it the football is not going to change anything. In the words of Gary Lineker, again, who I mentioned from 86 when he was playing, he's now a very talented presenter. He said, in, in direct quote, I am in Qatar to report the World Cup, not support the World Cup. And I think that's absolutely fair. So we do need to call out Qatar, but it also leads to the slightly awkward question of like, is this cultural imperialism? Now, look, for the record, gay rights, absolutely. Women's rights, absolutely. But at what point do you have a right as another country to tell another country how to run? There's obviously history and culture to be taken into account. It's not comfortable for us in the West, but then again, they may not feel comfortable coming to us. And if we went to Russia, a country that was literally in, had invaded another country, Qatar on the world stage has done nothing wrong. But what it is, is a very aesthetic, very not quite fundamentalist in a dangerous way, but very kind of basically Sharia law country. That's the problem there. So absolutely, it's not going to stop me watching it. I think it absolutely needs to be a conversation. But we keep hearing news and going back to this thing about how Brazil is now associated with the World Cup. More people have been talking about Qatar now than at any other time in the last 20 years. And yet 
Qatar probably didn't realize that while, yeah, great, everybody's talking about us, they're not talking about them in the way they were expecting them to. And I think that that's important. But I think we have to be realistic. When this is World Cup's finished, there is not going to be a huge change of gay rights or women's rights in Qatar. And that's a judgment call. But again, who went to the 2014 Brazil one, where literally people were rioting in the streets saying, you should be spending this money elsewhere. Everybody turned up to play football, though, didn't they? Exactly. It's kind of difficult and uncomfortable. So, yeah, I don't have a perfect solution to this, but already this World Cup is making history. Let's go. And the last thing I'm going to say is let's go to Argentina again, this country that's had such a wild relationship, up and down relationship with the World Cup. Well, in November 22nd, their first game, and they were one of the favorites for the World Cup, was against Saudi Arabia. Argentina at the time was voted or rated the third best team in the world. Saudi Arabia was rated number 51. Saudi Arabia has got a terrible reputation in the World Cup. Good for them for getting there, but nobody expected anything. And yet, by the end of the game, Saudi Arabia had won 2-1. It shocked everybody. And if you like, this is what makes the World Cup special. Anybody on the day can be any other country. And in this situation, you've got Lionel Messi, the greatest player in the world, possibly ever, possibly beating Maradona, possibly beating Pele. You know, yes, he's coming towards the end of his career, but he's still a very good player. And yet he was outplayed by a bunch of guys you have never heard of before. It was a sensational moment of football. It was so exciting. And obviously, from the point of Argentina, it's absolutely crushing. But this is what makes the World Cup so interesting. There is no script already written. You don't know what's going to happen next. And that's why people generally like sport. So I'm going to leave it there. Thanks very much for listening. And as always, another podcast coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.